All right, good afternoon, everyone. So we're gonna get started. So today, um, we have a speaker who probably needs no introduction from me, who you guys all know probably better than I do. So today's speaker is Dr. Dan Herr. Um, he's Associate Professor of both Medicine and Surgery. He's the Chief of Surgical Critical Care and the Director of the Cardiac Surgery ICU. He is gonna be talking to us today about um, pain, agitation, and delirium in the intensive care unit. That's it, that's good, that's good. So I got, I got. Uh, this is my uh, my tenth anniversary at the uh, University of Maryland. So I'm kind of excited about that. The first talk I ever gave here was exactly the same talk. So I'm going to leave. No. Um, so so obviously. Where, where did you put the clicker? Did you hand it to me? So, so, little thing, um, that's what I need, thank you. So, you know, I'm not gonna, I don't pretend to be an expert about this, and I am fairly, fairly well convinced after 33 years of talking about sedation and, and agitation in ICU, I still don't think we have an answer, and I don't think anybody has an answer to it. And especially now that we're in the, the narcotic age and we can't use narcotics anymore. But I gotta tell you, Sam Tisherman and I, he's not quite as old as I am, but, you know, we, 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 you're welcome. I just wanted to make sure. Um, we came from the days, seriously, I think, Sam, you remember, we just, the propofol truck would back up to the hospital and you'd fill the tanks up and then you'd just put everybody on propofol. And we used to call it milk of amnesia um, and just let people sleep for days on end. Um, yeah, midazolam before that and barbiturates before that. And there was a time when we only had Valium. Valium and barbiturates was what I grew up with. So. I guess we've come a long way. Um, certainly, we've learned. Some, I learned some things as I went along that people withdraw from propofol, they withdraw from benzos, and they can withdraw from narcotics. And I think that was one of the biggest things we really saw in the early days when we first started talking about SAT trials, spontaneous awakening trials. What a stupid term, right? Uh, okay, wake up, ah, uh, you know, and you're withdrawing from the propofol you've been on six days, or the narcotics you've been on ten days, or whatever. So. I think this talk's going to kind of center more on some of the drugs that we can use and some of the some of the hospital legends that go with those drugs that aren't true and some of the things that are true about those drugs. I was lucky enough to be one of the first persons in the United States to use Dex in an ICU, so talk a little bit about that. But the whole problem is, right, the whole problem is if, if I were, you were one of these, a patient, if I asked one of you to come down here and I said, come here. And uh, I want you to lay down on the floor here, and I want you to take all your clothes off. And, you know, everybody's still watching you, of course. And then, I, then I'm going to let you lay there, and it's going to be cold, and you're going to be naked in front of people, and you know, people pulling sheets off and everything. And you're sick, and you're scared. And then I'm going to say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to put, uh, we're going to put a central line in you. And you're like, what the hell is a central line? And then all of a sudden you start worrying, right? And all of a sudden somebody's sticking you, sticking you. And they got ultrasound machines, and they all have hats and gloves and masks on. You're laying there naked, and 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 you start getting a little bit anxious, I think, right? And and so so and then you know because you're anxious and you're starting to move around. Oh well, let's tie them down. That's a good thing. So we we tie the person down. You know, we say to the nurse, "Can you tie his arm down, please?" And then you might say, "In the old days, we don't do it much anymore." You you give the person some. Oh, we'll give them some Versed. All right, that's fine. The problem with Versed is that when they wake up, they're still in the same place. They're still tied down. They have sticks in them, and they're still in people's stand. So you wonder where this all comes from. This is just a continuum, right? It's, 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 it's this thing where you just keep getting more and more frustrated until you almost lose your mind. I mean, how is it any different than being tortured? So they've got to find this balance. I know we're talking about A, B, C, D, E, F now, and getting patients and talking to them and family being there and everything else. The first thing we got to consider is that you know we're torturing these patients in the first couple hours, and I think still um, I'm an old guy, but I still think comfort is really important when we're first trying to stabilize the patient. So my moral of that story is do whatever you can to make them comfortable. The second part of that story is though, and we know this: get them awake as fast as possible and get them acclimated as fast as possible. Once you're done doing all your things, that's not two days later, that's not 24 hours later, that's six or seven hours after the event try to get them up. And what happens is, oh, it's 7 o'clock, night shift, the nurse comes on, <laughs> propofol, 
up it goes. So I think, you know, we got to have that, that thought in our heads is, yes, we want to make sure the patient doesn't get into that delirial state. That's the first thing. And then after that, then we try to pull them, try to pull them out of whatever we're doing so that they don't get into the withdrawal syndromes and all that kind of stuff. So if you take that premise home with you, I think that might be of some benefit. Um, as I said, we have all these non-pharmacological events going on around the patient, the lights, the noise. Um, you know, this is basic stuff. And, and the problem is I don't think we pay, we all know it, but I'm not sure how well we pay attention to it. And I think we really have to think about these things. Um, I, I'm a big family proponent, but if I have a family in a room that's constantly, is he okay, and waking the patient up and moving them around and getting them all anxious, you know, and you don't even know if that family member is a good friend of the guy laying in bed in the first place. They may hate him. I don't know. You know, you just never know. Um, so I think you have to really be purposeful, I think, a, is my, my moral on this. So, of course, the first rule of comfort is you've got to have a sedation skill. Um, around here, we have the rack, right? Everybody knows what the rack is, right? So here's, here's a little thing I, I've got to make sure that you're aware of. Sorry, I'm supposed to walk away from this. I think nurses, when you walk to the bedside and you ask the nurse what's a rash, and they go, three. Okay, so what's a three? Oh, I don't know. Um, it looks like a three. You gotta remember that a rash is a procedure. If you're on rounds, you're responsible to ask the nurse what that means. Because I can tell you a lot of our new nurses have no idea what a rash of plus, you know, that rash of three on down is cold. You know, don't open your eyes, don't do anything. You know, and a rash of one, you yell their name, they open their eyes, what is it, 10 seconds, and they look at you, right? That's, that's a one. And, and our, we strive to be zero to minus one. So every time a nurse tells me, oh, they're a zero, they're a minus one, I walk in the room, yell their name, nothing happens, nothing happens. So I think the first thing is, yeah, we have sedation scales and we have the RAS, but you know, you've got to make sure that the nurse is doing it appropriately. Um, I'm gonna steal some thunder from later on because it might overrun. But to me, a spontaneous awakening trial, we've been talking a lot about this in the new system. We're looking at weaning and SPTs. This SAT thing should not even be an expression. Why would you ever need a spontaneous awakening trial? What you need is constant sedation at a certain rest. You need a titration trial. So every four hours, we're gonna propose soon that every four hours, the nurse should be titrating their drip to a rest every four hours, no matter what. You shouldn't have to wake a patient up to do a, a breathing trial. They should be ready to do a breathing trial at all times. If they're not, then they're sick as heck. My open chest, open bellies, you know, head injuries, whatever you want. But, you know, you should be probably working with the nurse and saying, hey, did you cut your, did you have your fentanyl last out four hours in the last four hours? Ooh, we went up. Why'd you go up? So, sorry. So there's some new rules out there. I think, you know, propofol is not a bad drug anymore because you're not supposed to use a lot of propofol. You use a little propofol, it's titratable, and we have, in our unit, we have lots of patients that are absolutely rasses minus one, zero, on a little bit of propofol and having a great day. Um, well, great day. Um, I think, you know, minimal narcotics, I think it's where we're headed. We have a real problem in this hospital with not minimal narcotics. We're, I see, I'm still seeing fentanyl drips at 300 and 400. We don't know how to use fentanyl. I think you need to talk to your pharmacist. Your nurses need to talk about it. It's a better bolus drug than it is a continuous drug. And just be going up on the fentanyl is not going to do a person a bit of good. Um, you need to re-bolus. Um, and I'll let the pharmacist talk about that later. Um, and of course, we're worried about narcotics now. We're being, our hands are being slapped for narcotics, and rightfully so. Um, we have to be consciously aware. Um, I find on rounds all the time, I find my t PRN, um, PRN oxy 10, 15 every four hours and it stays on the PRN thing forever and all of a sudden I look down and the patient's getting it every four hours. They're four days out of surgery. What the heck's going on? You know, the patient's asking for it. You know, we have to be very careful of our cardiac, oh, not cardiac, it's our, our um, med medical order sheets. We have to really view them every day um, because you can, you, after a while you start seeing narcotics being used and used and used. Dex, Dex, Dex. Um, I've always been a proponent of Dex. I'm still a proponent of Dex. I don't have to fight the pharmacy anymore. Um, I think we've seen the value of Dex, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about Dex metacomidine. Obviously, we think sleep's really important. I'm going to, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about that. I'm going to talk about atypical antipsychotics. 
ketamine I'm not an expert on yet, but I'm beginning to like it, not for myself, but for the patient. I do, I do get depressed. Um, and then benzos might not be a bad thing. Um, I think uh, continuous benzos we know are a bad thing, but an occasional PRM benzo is probably not a bad thing. So dexmedetomidine. I don't know if you all know where it works. It works down in the locus ceruleus, which is a huge area of a lot of norepinephrine uh, receptors. It's the beginning and the end. Well, it's the beginning, not the end, of your sleep cycle. It's where GABA is. It's where norepinephrine is inhibited. It allows GABA to be expressed. Then you knock out your GABA with your benzos. But dex is where it all starts. The area of the locus ceruleus has the highest of all, in your body, the highest number of alpha-2 receptors. And the clinical effects, you all know, I mean, you know where it works. It works in the spinal cord, too, um, and it actually works on the autonomic nervous system. We all know that. Um, certainly, it's an anxiolytic, and it's, I can't call it an analgesia because when we did the studies, I'll show you some of the results, but it certainly is an analgesic, as the insert says, it's an analgesic sparing drug, which I think a lot of us forget. I never understand when I walk by and I see a person on 300 of fentanyl an hour or 200 and dex at 1.5. I'm not sure what you're treating. Why um, treating anxiety more or, or coming out of bed more than pain? And there's a titration about anglo-sedation. Um, we all know the problem with heart rate and blood pressure. Um, real quick, I can tell you that if you lose your blood pressure with dexmedetomidine, you're probably dry. If you lose your heart rate, you're probably overdosed with dex. Um, here's something that everybody always says, oh, doctor, we use clonidine because it's so much cheaper. Well, guess what? Clonidine doesn't have near the receptive ability on the alpha-2s as dex does. And you see that the alpha-2 to alpha-1 selectivity, 1,600 versus 220. So, yeah, you can give clonidine, but trust me, you're going to have to give a lot of clonidine to get the same effects as dex. And probably when you get to that level, you're probably going to be knocking the pressure down. And the pressure is probably going to be knocked down because you're just knocking down all that hypertensive event. Because you're not sedating them, you're just making it. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a catch-22. Um, so this was the first study we ever did on DEX. It was kind of interesting. It was in open hearts. The company, the company made us compare it to propofol. And we kept saying to the company, but it's not propofol. It's dexmedetomidine. It, there was no drug. There is no other drug that does what dexmedetomidine does, except clonidine. By the way, these, this metatomidine, you know what that's for? It came from the veterinary world. It's what they use to sedate elephants and, and giraffes and rhinos and stuff like that. As a matter of fact, when we, when we first started learning about dex, they took us to the National Museum, the National Zoo down in D.C., and they showed us how they sedate a giraffe and they use metatomidine. Now, think about sedating a giraffe. They have that big, long neck, so when they go to sleep, they can just go crash. So they really have all these apparatuses, and the, 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 the giraffe has to go down on his knees first, and then he has to slowly fall over and not break his neck. So they use a drug like dexmedetomidine because what they do is they just fall asleep, so they can still kind of move. Um, it's really cool. And then elephants, too. Elephants will kill themselves. If they lay on their side, they'll die. They have to go down on their... Ever see an elephant sit down? They have to go down on their knees first, which is... so. Anyway, we learned that it was a very potent drug, but it was really cool because you could actually drop it off and the thing would wake up again and we would run out the door. No. Um, anyway, so, um, so it does, it, it was really interesting in this study because what we did see is that we saw, and I don't think people realize, we saw the decrease using analgesics, we saw a decrease in metamedic, we saw a decrease in epinephrine, we saw a decrease in epinephrine, and diuretic. But if you know anything about alpha-2 receptors, that's exactly what we should have seen. The amount of diuretics we saw um, really went down. We could not quite explain the better blocking agents, but who knows. Um, and then the epinephrine was kind of interesting too. Um, the question was, you know, we don't know exactly how this drug really works a lot of the time. Um, it was really neat too. Um, uh, oh, forget that. But um, we did not use CAMs because people didn't get, didn't, uh, didn't get delirious when they tried to surprise. Um, the biggest thing is this, we saw. Um, it's, uh, the, the actual insert says it's a sparing, a narcotic sparing agent. Like we said, it doesn't have complete pain control. But what we have seen is that 
um, people are now using dexmedetomidine for spinal epidurals for pain control. So it definitely has some effect on pain. Um, if you look at uh, the people that had incidence of propofol use during intubation, number of patients, 141, 30%. Extubation to six hours, post-extubation, 76 versus 31%. So there's much, much less morphine use in those patients. Um, so we can say it's sparing. Um, so that's something to remember because it is an analgesic. Um, here's the placebo, morphine required versus no morphine required in the dex group or the placebo group. Um, so that's where kind of the whole, that was the whole first study that came out. I think I wanted to talk just a little bit about how you transition from sedation. Um, a lot of people, you know, you got them on their propofol, you got them on their drugs. You really want to wake them up. Um, but you don't, you don't want to wake them up too fast because, and that's what we do. I think, you know, a, a resident will come along and say, hey, um, let's switch them to dexmedetomidine. And within the next hour, the nurse is turning off the propofene and has got the dex on, the propofol, and has got the dex on. That just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You have to wean off the propofol. You have to slowly in, bring up the dex. So, um, and sometimes when people get a little crazy, dexmedetomidine almost always needs a rescue drug. Remember, it's a sleep agent. It's not an anesthetic. So if you're really getting crazy and stuff and you're still trying to come down to propofol, we oftentimes will use a benzo, a PRN benzo, PRN, not continuous ever, not Versed because it's too damn short acting. It's only 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. So we'll actually use a long acting drug like Valium. And if you're over the age of 55 or 60, we'll probably use um, something else. So dexmedetomidine. Um, I usually start the drips at point four. Um, we usually use controlled infusion, obviously. I'm sorry, I'm on call and they're trying to get home. All right, hold on. I'm sorry, I apologize for this. I've got to get somebody to cover for me. Um, so, usually we start around, I usually start at point four, point two. In the open heart study we did, the average dose was 0.7. We all know now that, you know, that's how the, that's how the insert became. It was all that, all the insert for dexmedicomedy came from that one study we did, because that approved it in the United States. Um, it was probably wrong. We found out later, as you all know, that you can go up to 1, 1.5, whatever, of dex. I think our upper limit here in the, in the pharmacy is 1.5, and then you're supposed to start worrying. Um, but the biggest thing is, it, it, it's, it's hard to titrate dex to a sedation scale. It's hard to titrate, titrate dex to a RAS, to be honest with you. Because you think about it, it's sleep. So you can get a person perfect on dex in the ICU or just lay in there, and all of a sudden three people come in and try to do a neuro exam and stab the person five times. They're going to wake up. So, so a lot of people say, well, the dex didn't work. Well, yeah, it's working, but just like if you were asleep, it's going gonna, it's gonna to wake you back up. Now, when you start getting up in those higher levels of dex, then, okay, you're probably going to not wake up immediately. Um, when we first started using this, we asked patients how they felt after they had, because we all they knew they had dex, and they analogized it, and I thought it was pretty good. It was sort of like, well, you know, I, I kind of woke up, and it was like, I, I kind of like maybe answered a question, and then I fell back to sleep, and I never remembered the question. You know, it's sort of like when we're on call, you answer the phone, you tell them to do something, you hang up, and the next morning you say, did I do that? So, so that's kind of what DEX is. So DEX, got to remember, is not an amnesia. I think that's the important thing. It kind of makes you kind of uh, dreamlike, but it's not an amnesia. So if you're sticking people or doing horrible things to them, remember DEX is not going to let them forget, okay? Um, um, so here's the other thing about DEX. Um, and I, believe it or not, if you hover over the order set in DEX, it tells you exactly how to titrate DEX. The nurses never do it. Um, but essentially, what the biggest thing about DEX is, what's its toxicity? Its toxicity is bradycardia. And every time I used to start DEX, and the nurses say, it didn't work because they got bradycardic. True enough. I mean, once you get bradycardic, you've saturated. You're not going to get any more deal out of DEX. But what you can do with DEX is that what we've done is that you can Titrate your drug. Say you're going up on the decks, and you should probably only go up by every 20 to 30 minutes. That's the other thing I see. Boom, 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 boom. And man, then you're really in trouble about an hour and a half later, because now the heart rate's in the 50s, and you're really stuck. So if you go slowly, and if you see the heart rate get to whatever your point is, I have a rule in the CSIC, you all know you can't have your heart rate less than your age. 
Um, that always works. Um, but also we have a lot of heart failure patients. So I, heart rate times stroke volume is still a real thing, believe it or not. So we like to keep our heart rates above 70 and most of them we like to keep at 80. Most of you guys are probably happy with a 70. I don't go with the cardiologist 60. Once you're below 60, you've got a lot of track to do because the next one's going to be 50, right? Then you're in trouble. So what we do is we tell people to titrate the drug to a heart rate. Once you hit that heart rate, because you can't titrate to a sedation scale sometimes, right? You can't. They're still all over the bed, so you can keep going up. But once that heart rate hits, you, okay, I'm done with dex. If you drop below that thing, what we do is we tell you to stop the dex. Just stop it. Wait till the heart rate's about 10 beats above the rate that you wanted, the baseline rate you want, and restart the dex at half the dose that you were at the last time. If you do that three times, that's pretty basic pharmaceutical principle, three half-lives, you'll probably get a steady-state dex and you'll probably never have to look at it again. But if you give up on it, too bad. You know, that's, that's not the way to go. So everybody get that? Have it down, titrate the heart rate, because it's really hard to titrate the sedation scale. Now, if you can't, if you get to the heart rate thing, you got your maximum dose, you've done this, you say, sugar, they're still coming out of it, then that's when dex needs a rescue agent. And the rescue agent's your call. I either pick an atypical if you're old, and I pick a Valium if you're young. Valium's still a good drug, it's a good cheap drug. So here's essentially what I was saying. Um, when we do, when I do a propofol dex transition, um, I do the propofol very slow. I tell the nurse that she cannot go, she has to go down every couple hours on the, the propofol. I pick you know, one mic an hour or two mics an hour. They can't go back up. And they have to use some other rescue agent to get them out of it. That's assuming that you got your dex to your maximum dose. You get what I'm saying? Okay, so that way I get them off propofol, or I'll just say stop the propofol we even take. And usually I find that, that you know, I know it's three agents, but if you get that balance right, you usually hit it pretty well. And after a while, you don't need your PRN drug anymore. Um, sleep deprivation, we all know about that. Um, the problem with propofol is, you know, people say, well, they're asleep on propofol. No, they're not. They're amnestic on propofol. That's not sleep. If you want to be asleep, that's dex. Or sort of sleep. But, you know, it's like uh, phase three, I think, sleep or something like that. Um, I can't remember the odds with you. Um, but at least the, the propofol completely destroys sleep patterns. So if you're putting your propofol up at night to make somebody sleep, you're just putting them under amnesia at night. So you should be using something else. And I'll show you the dex study about dex. But I think you got to be real careful. And I think that we used to think, at least in our place, we used to use a lot of propofol patients, a high dose, and all of a sudden turn it off, and these patients are delirious. Maybe they were really delirious because they just didn't sleep for four days. Really. They were in that meeting. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever had propofol as an outpatient. What do you do when you go home? Go to sleep. <laughs> it's not because the propofol is hanging out anymore. So um, anyway, um, the low-dose nocturnal dexamethamidine, this is an article that came out, I don't know, when was it, last year? Um, this was actually a pretty neat study. We were kind of PO'd at the people that did it because they got the money to do it, and we always wanted to do it for about four years. But they actually looked at dexamethamidine as a sleep agent. Um, the results is 80% of dex patients remain delirium-free versus 54 placebo. This might be the first study that kind of says it actually might be a preventive drug. But it's all probably a preventive drug because it allows people to sleep. Kind of a catch-22, kind of a roundabout. So in the ICU now, since the price of this stuff went down, I don't get pushed back anymore and the papers are out. We use dexmedetomidine at night on our patients. Um, we'll jump to it pretty quick, especially if they're very hyperadrenergic, i.e. tachycardic, hyperventilating. You know, that perfect patient for dex. You want to block those alpha 2s, right? You're right, antagonize those alpha 2s. So that's pretty much how we use it. We do nocturnal. We usually just tell the nurse to not titrate it. We just tell them to put it at 0.4. If that doesn't work that night, then the next night we go up to 0.6 because I don't like the nurse titrating up and down at night because then the patient's awake, they're alert, it's a mess. Just watch the heart rate, right? Watch the heart rate. Um, so these are the sleep orders. I guess you know now um, we have a sleep supplement. don't know if you know that. In Epic. So if you want somebody to sleep at night, you write in the type in sleep supplemental and up will come a whole bunch of choices that you have to make about what you want the nurse to do at night for sleep. 
there's some things you have to do and some things you don't have to do. But the idea there is to tweak the provider and to tell the nurse what they have to do. So that is now in Epic. It's there. I suggest you use it as often as you can. Um, even in sick patients, it doesn't interfere that much with the care. Um, so please take a look at that. It's called sleep supplemental. It's not just sleep orders. There's a sleep order and then a sleep supplemental. And that's the one you want to use. Um, most people don't need stuff done at night. We've banned, in our ICU, we banned small bowel tube placements at night. Um, we've banned MRI trips at night. Um, even though they don't do MRIs during the day, we just say, well, then we just won't get the MRI. Sorry. Is there ever an emergent MRI? <clears throat> Nowadays, I guess there is. Sort of. um, I want to talk about atypicals. Um, my favorite subject is suprasodone and risperidone are my favorite subjects. There are about 10, 15 atypicals out there in the market now. I remember, I'm the lean mean guy. Um, I figure if I know two drugs well, I can probably use them better. Um, so delirium treatment, you still see a lot of Haldol in this institution. I don't have a real big problem with that, unless you want to make the person complete this aesthetic and they look at you like this and never interact with you. But that's my own bias, I think, maybe. Um, but Zepresidone or Sparadone, the classic thing is you have no hangover. So I started using Zepresidone probably around the year 2000 when it first came out because we were interested in using atypicals beside Haldol. I worked in a cardiac ICU. We used gallons, I'm telling you, gallons. You have no idea. Sam or Carl might remember the days when you doubled the dose of Haldol until you got the patient to sleep. You go from 2 to 4 to 8 to 12, 16 to 32 to 64. I mean, we used Haldol like it was candy. We had nothing else. We had no other atypical antipsychotics. And what we would see is we'd see tons of malignant neuroleptic hyperthermia. We would see tons of um, trisades. We'd see QTs all over the place. Um, that didn't bother me. The trisades did. Um, so we said, let's we go. So we got this atypical. So the company, Lily, who made it at that time, said, hey, you're going to start using this in the ICU. Why don't you come up and watch how we use it on schizophrenic? So I've got the privilege of going to the Bellevue psych ward. Have you ever been to the Bellevue psych ward? It's most interesting place. Um, but the bottom line is that what they were doing was I actually saw patients do this. Patients would come in and say, I don't want the H drug. I want that zippy drug. What zippy drug? Why did they want this? These were patients that were known schizophrenics, they were pretty well educated, knew their disease. And when they felt becoming schizophrenic, or they felt they were going to have an acute attack, they'd go to the ER and they'd want IV or IM Zepresidone. I, I did say IV, by the way. And they'd get their Zepresidone and they knew that they could go back to work the next day. They couldn't go back to work the next day because they, they got howled all. They were too droggy and too dysesthetic, which is kind of a very interesting thing. If you watch the difference, if you really get used to this, and you do Zepresidone, you do howled all in different patients, you're going to find your, your patients on atypical are much more interactive and yet calm. Where the Haldol patients are less interactive and very kind of wiped out. So that's pretty much why I switched over to these two drugs. There's another reason. I'm a pharmacologist by training. Oh, I wanted to talk about another tech. Um, I'm going to come back to this slide. Don't ask me one. So this is the thing that people keep throwing in my face. This is the new MIND study. It was actually done here by a few, few people. Um, what it did was it compared Zepresidone IV, by the way, it was IV, um, to Haldol. Um, the problem I had with the study, and it said that they, both, they were conclusions you can read there. Use of Haldol and Zepresidone is compared to a placebo patient with acute respiratory failure or shock or hypoactive or, or hyperactive delirium in the ICU did not commit any auto duration of delirium. 90%, 89% of patients are hypodelirious. I don't use these drugs in the hypodelirium patients. Maybe you do. But I've never seen a patient wake up because I gave them an atypical. Ever. I mean, we use, in our place, we use Ritalin nowadays, or I um, can't remember the name of the other drugs. But, um, so, so I have a real problem with this whole study. And to be honest with you, um, I was part of setting up this study, and then I backed out because I didn't like the way they were doing it. So I did not do after a closer look, the non-comatose patients were excluded if form-form consent could not be attained within 72 hours. There's a lot of things about this study. Even the um, editorial in the New England Journal said at the end, you know, it would have been nice to know what you do with a patient who's coming off the bed who's psychotic and delirious. What drug should you give them? And, and if you're doing 89% of the patients who are hypo-delirium, I don't get, 
I don't know why they would expect the result. So I have some real problems with this. Uh, many of the patients I have which made it difficult to estimate the effect of the anti-cytokinetic or hyperactive delirium. But they say, nonetheless, the delirium assessment tool that was used to determine trial outcomes takes into account integrated aspects of delirium syndrome and supports the conclusion that trial drugs had no effect on the duration of delirium medicine. Crazy. Um, and even, even the, 19, the 2018 POTUS uh, recommendation, the SCCM guidelines for sedation, say that they don't know what to do with hyperactive delirium. Um, but you have to do something, right? So we don't know what the bottom line. So why use an atypical? I, I kind of talked about that already. I'm not going to go through that slide a whole lot. Certainly, certainly, there is no doubt that atypicals do not cause near the amount of trisage of ventricular tachycardia or cardiodyskinesia or hyperthermic syndromes. They don't. Um, no matter what you read, no matter what you see. Um, the potential advantages of atypicals versus conventionals, they decrease the extracurricular effect, which I keep talking about, uh, unlikely to cause laryngeal dystonia, um, and lower mortality when used in elderly to treat agitation related to the We know about that jam article, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's not our patients. Um, here's the important part. Um, these drugs really do block different receptors. And you think about the 5-HT receptors, probably the most 5-hydroxytryptophan. There's a couple of different ones. There's four or five. First two are important. Um, when I was a pharmacologist, the guy next door to me worked with um, psychotropic drugs. Um, I don't know if you know, but 5-hydroxytryptophan is only one, one methyl group away from LSD. You all know what LSD is. Um, so so to, to block the 5-hydroxytryptophan, I think a lot of people that are they're schizophrenic because they essentially are having LSD attacks. I mean, they're just, you know, it's just like taking LSD. So, um, what I like to do is I look for drugs of 5-HTC inhibitors. And, you know, the dopaminergic ones is the ones that really give you a hard time. That's the people that get the torsades. So, uh, I'm not going to go through all this real quick. I mean, you can see this if you want to copy it, it's going to be out there. But here, I think, it's more demonstrating the, 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 the difference. So take a look at. I don't know if this has been going long enough. But take a look at good old Seroquel. Why do you think we use Seroquel for sleep? H stands for histamine. It's a histamine drug. It's, that's pretty much what it does. It puts you to sleep. Um, when we do it, use it here for sleep. Um, if you look at um, Suprazidone or Sparadone, this is, I think, the, the nice thing about those two drugs. Look at all the 5-HT blocking ability of these two drugs. And look how little histamine there is, almost none. And then look how little D2 there is, D1. Almost none of D1 on the Suprazidone. Take a look at Haldol, there's your D2. So, I believe that these two drugs are probably better drugs for what our patients here for those. I don't have proof for that. I do know that I can give somebody about five of IV or ten of IV suprazidone and they calm down really quick. Um, we uh, looked at we looked at suprazidone in our ICU. We gave a heck of a lot of this is an abstract we put out. I apologize for never writing the paper. Um, but uh, what we found was that about a third of the time, about a third of the time, patients had zeprazidone, they got zeprazidone, a third of the time their QTs didn't go out, a third of the time we gave it when their QTs were already out, and a third of the time nothing happened. Um, and guess what? No trisods. None. Zippo. So you guys are working in the emergency room these days, and you're starting to see droperidol coming back. Um, remember, droperidol got a black box because of prolongation of QT. But now we found out that, well, maybe that's true, but people don't prosize. What is the underlying reason with prosize? May not just may not just be the prolongation of QT. It may be the type of drug you're taking that prolongs the QT that causes the arrhythmia. And I challenge any of you to do, there's never been a study of the natural history of QTC intervals in ICU sick patients. And if you walked around your ICU today, probably by about a third of them have prolonged QTCs and you're not paying any attention to it. So, think about that for a while. <clears throat> it's certainly, and you'll hear me on round, it's not, I don't care, give them the surprise of them. They're going to kill themselves. 
And then there's this other problem. I'm sorry about the way this slide came out, but <clears throat> just so you know, yes, they're great drugs for patients. I think they're great drugs. They're good drugs. They're drugs we use for delirium in the ICU. But once a patient's out of the ICU environment and we've taken away everything, can you please discontinue them and don't send them home on their antipsychotics? It's really rough on their insurance counts because now all of a sudden they're, they're probably schizophrenic or something else, they're an insurance carrier. Um, they're probably absolutely fine. Um, we can track this to see how well you guys are doing. Um, you can see we're not doing too bad. There's 83% about, somewhere this is July, August and September, this is the most up-to-date data we have. But people are actually trying to stop the drug. Um, but probably most patients should be stopped. And we look, we look at the reasons you do it. You know, Mavic tells stories. Um, if you notice here, um, a lot of times they say the appropriate order is already initiated. Um, just, I like the one that's not applicable. 10996. In other words, you just flat screw up it and say, no, I'm not going to see it. Um, our BMPs, or whatever they're called, BPAs, BPAs, is that what they're called? BPAs, are, are there for a reason. Tell you to do something. Um, you know, not taking responsibility. Um, this is not my decision 105 times. It is your decision. If you're writing the orders, it's your decision. Please try to get the antipsychotics off of people before they go home. Please, we'll stay. Um, I'm sorry, that's the same size. Um, so ketamine, I'm not an expert on ketamine. Like I said, I'm beginning to like ketamine. Um, we all know the side effects. At least I hope we all know the side effects. Um, I got burned one time. I had a lady we were going to do a peg tube on. Um, she was a type A aneurysm that was repaired, luckily. Um, I forgot to give her some benzo before I gave her ketamine. She was 79 years old. She got hallucinations for blood pressure went to 240. And I was scared. scared. Um, so remember, it can cause hypertension if they start <laughs> Even all alone, it can cause hypertension. But boy, if they're hallucinating underneath there and you don't know it, they really get in trouble. So my caveat is <clears throat> make sure you use a little bit of benzo sometimes with this drug if you're going to use it for procedures. Um, I can tell you I grew up with this drug here at Chuck Trauma in the 1980s, 1985, as a matter of fact. And we were using ketamine ubiquitously to do wound care. And, and like people who had degloving injuries, they just stand there and stare at you. Um, it's a really good drug for procedures, I must say. If I keep hitting the wrong button, it'll never get done. Um, you guys pretty much know the onset of action, action and duration. Um, I think the big thing here is to know um, a lot of patients once you get above 0.7, which a lot of our patients do get above 0.7, you're pretty but disassociated. So if you're completely disassociated and coming off the bed, I sometimes think, okay, I need a little benefit on top of this to cool these patients down. And I find that works really well. Um, depending on what you're doing, if you're doing long-term sedation, then I think Valium is an okay drug. Valium got a really bad name because it was the only drug we had and people give, used to give it around the clock. Please don't give Valium ever around the clock. If you want to give Valium, make it PRN and make sure that you say only give it for a rash of plus two or something like that. Otherwise, it'll accumulate and it'll be asleep for weeks. So please, Valium is a good drug, but it's a PRN drug, it's not around the clock. Benzos. Here's some too that people completely forget. They go, oh, midazolam gets to the head faster. Guess what? Valium gets to your head faster. So if a nurse is just patient's beating the nurse up and everything, and you don't want to drop their blood pressure real quick, and you want to get them calm, and you want them to stay calm and not wake up 20 minutes later and have to do it all again, give them a slap of Valium. I'm just bringing back some old drugs that actually work. Um, it really works well, and that way it'll hold the patient for a little bit longer until you can get things done or get things straight. So remember that patient who was getting anxious and everything else, you know, when you first walk in the room. You know, a little benzo is not going to hurt the patient. That's not going to make them do it. So knocking out is easy. I think comfort is really, really tough. Um, I think the approach nowadays is number one is get, try to get people to sleep, um, real sleep, not propofol sleep, not amnestic sleep. Um, and analgesia is a big deal. And you know that one JAMA paper talked about angulo sedation or how do you say the word um, is, is good. But I don't think it's great. I think what we do is we get carried away with trying to sedate people with narcotics that has nothing to do with pain. And I think we have better agents than narcotics. I mean, well, we have better agents, not better agents for the patient to knock them out. I think, you know, we keep going up and up and up on narcotics. 
that's great for the nurse, it's, you know, it works, but the point is there is that you can probably use other drugs and have them more awake and more interactive if you just chose your drugs right and got used to using the drugs a certain way. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really scared about how much analgesia we're using for non-painful product. Um, I think the next step, is, so most of us go to propofol first in our unit. Um, I sometimes go to dex first. Um, it depends on how hyperadenergic they are. They're not really hyperandergic, but just really a pain. <laughs> a little bit of propofol, I think it's nice. Um, we run 510 propofol. Um, we do not run it on patients that are not extubated. Um, my old place we did, and we don't do that. Um, so that's the primary. And then and the antipsychotic or the Valium, I think on top of that is a rescue agent's good. I think if it's an older person who's really delirious, I mean, you got them, they're out of the, you know, they're out of the, you're not trying to prevent it, they're out of the, the world is crazy. Um, on my approach, um, a lot of my surgeons don't like my approach, but my approach is to knock them out um, with a, uh, an atypical first and then bring them back up. Um, it usually takes only like a day, day and a half to do that. Um, used to call it where I came from, we used to call it a chemical ECT. Um, but it seems, to, it seems to work for me. I'm not advocating it a whole lot, but the other patient is just struggling with, don't be afraid to just put them out with a little bit of AC, a lot of AC at the door, and then they'll come back up. Um, narcotics we talked about. Um, interpreting the 2018 Canyon Agitation Sedation Delirium and Mobility and Sleep Disruption Clinical Practice Guideline. There was a really nice article in Critical Care. Remember, they, they sent out all the, the guidelines and every one of them, every one of the recommendations was low or very low based on evidence. Every one. There was not one high, high, whatever it is, randomized, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, it's really difficult, but you read this article and it kind of helps you walk you through it. It's kind of like, how do I really do this? Um, I don't think it's badly written. Uh, I still don't know what to do with pain. I, I still struggle with pain a lot. I'm very narcotic sensitive. Um, you know, bolus versus continuous. I do think bolus fentanyl might be a better way to go than continuous. Really apply that. We rarely, on our open chest, in this cardiac ICU, we rarely go above 50 mics of fentanyl. And the patient seems pretty calm. And now, trauma patients with 25 broken bones, etc. so that's a different pain, I think. I think it's probably more painful than an open chest, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but you know, we have the high incidence of side effects, the ileuses we're always fighting. People aren't pooping for days. Um, we really have to be careful with our narcotics. The ambivalence to the environment, yeah, I mean, I always think of this, you know, okay, fine, yeah, that I always say that my team, I say, yeah, and their fights work. Remember, in Hannibal, he ate his blade. You guys see Hannibal? That's the, you know, the guy sitting there and he picks up his brain and he's, he's giving him narcotics and out of Um, sidebar. Um, high dose fentanyl, serotonin syndrome, it happens. It happens more than you think. Um, especially if you're giving them a natalid or an AO or something like that. So please be careful with fentanyl so it's not act like uh, a serotonin syndrome. I think it's with fentanyl. A lot of people forget about that. Um, I also, again, I, I stress the fact that sex is a good pain drug. Um, so if you're just doing the fentanyl and knock the patient out, find the fine propofol. Find the fine ketamine. Ketamine is a really good drug for pain. We all know that. Um, 0.3 of ketamine is a really nice pain agent. You really have a person. Um, so I'm still not sure, but I'm just putting the warning out there. I think we'll overuse it. Um, this was interesting. This was a, a review I found um, within a, the journal we all read. I think it's called Evidence-Based Complementary and Alternative Medicine. So we read that every week. Luckily, I have a search agent that sends me articles every week about sedation, so I have never heard of this journal. But um, it was kind of a neat meta-analysis. They looked at preventive treatment for delirium. And it was kind of interesting what I, was, what I saw, and I was kind of surprised and of course pleasantly pleased. Um, you see the uh, antipsychotic drugs, atlantapine and risperidone had promising effects, but there was lack of sufficient evidence to obtain a definitive conclusion. And their conclusion was among all the pharmacological prophylactic measures for post-optimism, dexmedicomony, atlantapine, risperidone, so higher efficacy of all other drugs. It's your world. Try it. I don't know. Um, I've actually been using, I use a lot of risperidone. Um, I use a lot of dex. 
I use the tiny bits of propofol very little. Um, believe it or not, this is actually in, is it on policy stat or is it just in the pharmacy protocol from guidelines? Right? Pardon? Is it on policy stat? Let me go get that over there. Anyway, this is actually a kind of a guideline that, that the Rise and Shine Committee for critical care operations has come up with several years ago. We just updated it a couple months ago. Um, you can find it on the internet, apparently. I don't know how. Um, but anyway, it, it offers our, it's our guidelines in this institution for how to use sedating agents. It also has, um, it also has behind it, it also has a bunch of how the maximum doses of narcotics, how we're supposed to use them, that kind of stuff. What we haven't done is this. Um, we haven't enforced uh, standard titrate sedation titration <laughs> trials in this hospital. Um, we're sort of supposed to do it, but nobody knows how, nobody does it. So we're working on guidelines on how to titrate these drugs um, every four hours for the nurses. So that every four hours they have to look at their rash. They do a rash every hour. We thought maybe every four hours would be a reasonable number for half-life drugs. Um, but we're going to try to teach nurses how to titrate their drugs on a continuous basis. So we all, what happens is, you know, they're just sitting fentanyl or sitting propofol at 50 for hours and hours. Nobody attempts to try to wake the patient up. Except in the morning when you're trying to do rounds. And then there's a spontaneous awakening trial and all these families. Occasionally over. So what we'd like to do is have nursing and doctors and everybody else trying to maintain the person at the same level all the time. We don't do that well. Certainly patients vary upon themselves. I think we're working on that, and I think that's something that's going to come to you real soon. Uh, just to be out of the box completely, a Dr. Herzen. Um, so we're, we're kind of doing this continuous muscle relaxation, and that's medically typical, atypical. But what we find is a lot of our patients, we learn this pain and the easy ethnosis, not to a train of four, but to a, a respiratory rate that we think is appropriate for the patient. Now, we're not trying to take a patient from 40 down to 10. That means they're going to be fully paralyzed. But what we do do is we, we bring the, we tell the nurse that I want this respiratory rate somewhere between 25 and 30. And what I want you to do is when they're at 30, I want you to go up in the cystatricurium, and when they're at 20, we want you to go down. And what we found is that these patients still can interact with us because they're on decks, they can still interact with us, and guess what? They can still move their arms, which is really strange, because that's not written up anymore. What we do find is that now the nurse is not chasing the respiratory rate at all. They're chasing the cystic and it's really not really paralyzing. And that's thus the term continuous muscle relaxation. So the nurses don't think we're really paralyzing. We are. Um, but anyway, if you want to try that, that's what we're doing. We don't do train of core. We've been having a lot of success with it because you know the work of breathing is probably part of our problem with the damage to the lungs, right? You're charging these high negative inspiratory efforts and they're just pulling these your villi open and closed like this continuously. So if you get that respiratory rate controlled, um, you'll find you use much less sedation, much less sedation. I mean, we had literally somebody laying in bed, weak, I'll admit, weak, but writing notes. And over time, as her lungs healed, the cystic went away. But still was able to interact with the family. I don't do that. Thing. So, and I, I have like maybe 15 cases I can show you. Something to think about, something you have to handhold the nurse, trust me. You have to sit there and you really have to walk over this. Once the unit gets used to doing it, they get pretty, our units pretty used to doing it, not so bad. I guess the bottom line is, Right drug, right patient. I, you know, I think still, I think propofol is a very good drug. 
I think we use too much of it. If you can find a nice combination between propofol and dex, that's not so bad. I think you really have to watch the titration of your narcotics. I think we're getting narcotics a little too high. Um, and the most important thing, get them off the ventilator. I mean, the ventilators really, wouldn't it? I mean, think about a ventilator. I mean, you know, I started out this lecture, I brought you down here, you're naked, you're getting, we're doing all things. But now, I'm putting a tube in your throat, and you're breathing completely opposite that mankind was ever meant to breathe. Positive pressure. And I can tell you, how many patients have you extubated also in all the stations? So, our job is to make the patient as comfortable as possible, adjust the ventilator to the patient, not the patient to the ventilator. Ventilator to patient, not patient to ventilator. I just said the opposite, what I said about the cis experience. Sometimes you just can't get the ventilator to work with the patient. So, um, that's kind of stuff that we're really working on now. And just to show you, how do I do? Okay, I do. So this is a patient um, in our ICU. She's an open chest. Um, she's an open chest. She is on tiny bit tenopropofol, um, dex, and she's on about 25 of fentanyl an hour. And if you want to, you know, you always show your best patient, right? I don't know if you're going to see this, but she actually nodded her, see her nod her head right there? And if you watch right here, There's your thumbs up. That's, to me, a perfect RASP zero or minus one, right? I mean, she's open chest. <laughs> she's open chest laying there, and she's following command. So it's just dex, a little bit of propofol. And guess what we did? As soon as she came back to the ICU, we went to that algorithm as fast as possible. We didn't keep going up on the fentanyl. You know, we started out with a fair amount of propofol, got her fairly comfortable, got the family in the room, family talking to her the whole time, coming down on the on the propofol, adding the dex in as she became actinergic, you know, starting to get a little bit anxious. Turned that up and then just ran the fentanyl. And now I can ask her, do you have pain? No. Okay, I'm going to leave the fentanyl at 25. So you can do it. It's just really hard to do. Um, I, think, I think that's all I have to say. I hope you learned something about something today. Okay? Thanks, guys.